For this podcast from the Oxford International Centre for Publishing, we have Carl Robinson, Senior Consultant with Ixus. Carl talks about helping clients to look at business vision, goals and strategies around their content and tooling to enable flexibility and readiness to meet the ever-changing demands of the digital market. What I thought I could do for maybe about 30 minutes is just talk a bit about who I am, who Ixus is, some of the things we, we try to help publishers do, um, particularly the way my role is, which I'll come on to in a minute, is to look at try to help publishers articulate what they're having difficulty with, and then we try to solve it. And I think that's quite could potentially be quite interesting. Is seeing we see a lot of commonalities because the joy of being a vendor is we work with lots of publishers, so we we keep seeing the same problem, and every publisher thinks they're unique, and then they're not. I mean, it's no big secret. They all think they, their particular problem is their own. It's not. Um, sometimes there are nuances that are difficult, but uh, but anyway, we'll we'll come into that in a minute. Um, and then um, I, I talk a little bit about um, the kind of general areas that we try to help publishers in and a few sort of ending thoughts. And then I thought I'd leave, I, I don't know, about 20 minutes or so. We could just have a, continue the conversation and go off on random topics, talk more about Ixus, more about particular publishing problems, whatever you want. I, um, so my, I'm, um, uh, my background is not a technology background, particularly. I started in... Uh, educational in ELT publishing, so English language teaching publishing, in 1995 when I was living in Poland, um, which I, I got that job because I taught English on Polish state television. And, I'm, <laughs> and somebody said, oh, we need somebody who's a good face, so that's fine. My face looked a lot better when I was in my early <laughs> 20s. So, And, um, and I uh, started out there and I moved back to the UK. Um, as a publishing manager for Macmillan Education when they used to be on Between Towns Road uh, up here in Oxford. Um, so if you go up to Between Towns Road, which is, hang on, let me think, up that way, uh, and you turn right and you see those lovely flats that look like an office block on the right-hand side, that used to be Macmillan Education before they moved to London. Um, prior to that, it used to be the Potato Marketing Board. So when they first moved in, they had meeting rooms that were named King Edward Room, Mary's Piper Room, things like that. So absolute truth, I'm not, I'm not lying. Um, and then I moved to Oxford University Press, where I was a um, publishing manager for the secondary ELT list. Uh, and it was then, really, that I started getting involved in digital publishing, because it was easy to see the writing on the wall, the digital publishing at that point. So if you think, I, was, I joined in 2006, and at that point, everybody was getting nervous about devices and things like that, and what do we do about teaching English in the classroom, and people are expecting free content and all that kind of stuff. And the publishers were rightly nervous. So we started looking into how could we um, start doing different types of publishing. Is that distracting that it keeps sliding, by the way? No, it's just, I can just see it out of the corner of my eyes. So anyway. um, and, and that was when I then moved out of a kind of traditional publishing manager role. So I'd managed a team and we had a list that we had to develop and it was very much a print-centric list into what could we do around augmenting the print with digital and then starting to look at digitally delivered courses um, and then actually on a wider business level what on earth are we doing about this digital thing anyway and there are lots of problems which are still there um, not only in OEP down the road but most publishers I see about print I, I call it kind of print faithful digital publishing 
So you get a lot of page or page behind glass type approaches to publishing. Um, and um, print drives the publishing flow still, um, particularly in educational publishing like that, although journals publishing has moved on considerably well. So the, the whole publishing industry is at a real sixes and sevens when it comes to their maturity around publishing, uh, digital publishing in particular. Um, so then I took a role at, uh, um, that was called Business Engagement Manager. And the idea of that role was not to be IT and not to be publishing, but to be somewhere in the middle and somehow help the two parts of the business talk to each other. Because an IT-driven publishing solution is generally not a good one, in my view, because IT look at it as solving a particular IT problem. And the business over here, the publishing managers, the editors, the salespeople and so on, look at it as uh, we've got a technology problem, so throw it over to IT, whereas in fact I think it's a business problem. And so this business engagement role was somewhere in between the two to try and help two sides talk to each other. Leaving OEP, I ended up at Ixus, where the role I have now, it started off as publishing consultant, but it's now called principal consultant. And it's the same role, fundamentally. It's about helping publishers articulate what the problem is so that we can find the right solution. And I'll come on to why that's important in a little while, because I think um, at its heart, what you end up with is uh, the wrong people trying to decide how to solve a problem. They come to people like us, Ixus, and say, can you build that, please? And we say, wait a second, are you sure that's the right thing to build? It's like somebody saying, my needs are to have a car that enables me to go to Tesco twice a week, load up the shopping, come home and so on, but uh, here's a specification for a Rolls Royce. And it's sort of the disconnect between what they give us in, in often in um, these documents called do you know what an RFP is? Have you heard of that? An RFP is a, uh, it's a document most publishers will do because they have to align with procurement standards. So they will create something called a request for proposal. They send it out to a publisher, sorry, to a vendor like Ixus, uh, and they say, this is what we want you to build, typically. This is what we want you to build. Tell us how you build it and how much it will cost. And then they go away for six months, analyze 13 proposals from 13 different vendors, and then come back and award it to somebody. Now, that proposed that RFP may have taken them six months to prepare. They then take a further three or six months or whatever to, aside, to decide whether the right vendor is, is there. So it's already a year out of date by the time they get somebody in place. And typically, they're saying, can you build that for me? What we do at Ixus, and it annoys people, I nearly swore then, it annoys people a lot is we often say, you know, this RFP, can we just put it aside for a minute? Let's just talk about the problems for a minute. And that's the role of the principal consultant, is to say, look, what's the problem that you're trying to solve? Because what you've done is tell me how you would solve it, and yet we're supposed to be the experts. But why aren't you asking us how we would solve the problem, rather than telling us how to solve the problem? So we often push back as, as a vendor. So this is, we call, we're called vendors, and a lot of people call us vendors. I prefer to think of us as, um, partners um, and the principal consultant role and all of my colleagues tend to be trying to create a trusted advisor role so I will go in first of all and I often say just forget what you've told us to build let's just go back to basics very quickly what's the problem and what are the problems that they're trying to solve um, typically it'll be things like um, content all over the place so, so the areas we try to look into are um, how do they maximize, we have these phrases that we spin out sometimes, maximizing the lifetime value of your content. But let's think of a typical publisher, my own experience here. I was publishing quite content rich, 
um, language teaching courses that had lots of photos, lots of artwork, lots of text in it, uh, lots of rights cleared text in it, lots of altered rights cleared text in it. All of that needed to be managed through a process. It was driven by the print page, the way that it was designed. Um, and we had these silly situations where we would constantly commission somebody to do a photograph. Imagine language teaching, you know, um, what's this? It's a cup. What's this? It's tea. What's that? It's microphone. What's this? It's projector. And we would, for every single book, commission somebody to take photographs of these different things. Um, because sometimes it was on principle that, you know, actually it had to be the right photograph with the right, you know, needed to look more modern. Fine, you're updating content. But the amount of photographs of cups of tea that we had, because of course it was about teaching English, was absurd. And yet we never reused this content. And there are a number of reasons why. One, mostly, is because we couldn't find the stuff. Mostly it's because somebody had commissioned it 10 years ago, or five years ago, or last year for that book. It was held on somebody's hard drive over here. Um, it wasn't easy to find even on their hard drive. If only so-and-so X who left last year knows where to find it. So it just gets lost. And it became cheaper and quicker to rebuy that content uh, than it was to, to, re to, than to reuse that content. That's a small problem, but you magnify that across thousands of assets in a company the size of OUP. Um, and you've got a big expensive problem. There was a survey done, I think it was even 10 years ago now, um, that analysed statistically, looked at kind of how long it takes people to find content that isn't indexed in any way. And then they multiplied it by a thousand employees and they multiplied it by an average salary and so on across 52 weeks. And the lost time finding content of a company the size of a thousand employees, so let's say OEP, is about a thousand employees globally. Um, that was costing them one and a half million pounds annually in lost time. That's product. That's one and a half million pounds you could be spending somewhere else. Um, and that's the kind of thing we see repeatedly: is content in silos, sort of divided by division. Like I'll go back to OEP again because it's very familiar, perhaps to some of you. I don't know if you visited OEP. OEP has four divisions, and within those divisions, they'll have four departments. They'll have ten departments. So the ELT department was one division. Sorry, the ELT division was one division, Oxed was another, Academic was another. Within ELT, you'd have primary publishing, secondary publishing, Spanish publishing, Italy publishing, uh, Asia publishing. Uh, and then you might have the digital unit over here who's trying to service everybody. All of those people were keeping content in their own silos, in their own way. I, I did some work for another university press who had the editorial team manage content in one way, throw it over a wall to the digital team, who then reworked that content, renamed it, put it in a different silo, and then tried to use it. The problem of this is expanding nonsense around different ways of holding content, different ways of finding content, different ways of delivering content. And that creates a, a, a large financial and time-wasting problem for a lot of the publishers. So that's, you know, that's one common problem we see. Um, but most of it is, for, for Ixus, we, I mean, it's interesting there, they've changed that strap line. We got bought by a copyright clearance centre about two years ago, and they've turned it into data systems integration and knowledge engineering experts. We used to say we're a tech, global technology company that, it, um, that provide publishing solutions that accelerate digital transformation. That's how we used to call it, which is one I prefer, if I'm honest. Um, and the reason for that is because we talk about 
and this is where I'd see us as a partner, not a vendor, is we try to talk about what the whole problem is. And the whole problem is not just, let's get all of your content in, you talked about Alfresco earlier on, you know, let's get your content organised in a content management solution so you can find it easier. But it's also about what are the people doing around that content? What are the processes that support that content? And then what's the technology that helps deliver it? So we have this idea of a circle of people, process, technology, and the centre of it is content. Um, and it's about getting that content available for reuse, available to be used in multiple places, available to create new products. You can break up an old book, an old journal. Uh, you can connect these different disparate pieces of content together and create a whole new product. You can create relationships between content. On a rights front, this is the kind of thing we're trying to do now, is save people, save people time Again, how can I re can I reuse this? How do I have the rights to reuse it? Well, let's let's show that. Let's expose that. So you have a piece of content and you've got the metadata around it, decorating the content so that you can expose the rights availability of it. Then you can also find out what you're missing as well. If you know what you've got, you can find out what you're missing. All of those things we try to solve. But it's people, process, technology around content. And the people thing is interesting. So people don't expect a technology company to be solving people problems. And that's where the partner thing comes in. And that's where we shove the RFP aside and say, you're showing us a technology solution. Let's talk about what are the problems you're trying to solve? And they're saying people are too slow, they can't find content. Okay, maybe there's a technology solution for that. But maybe there's a mindset solution that needs to happen. Maybe people need to change the way they think. So one of these things that's just there, thinking outside the books, was a white paper I wrote a couple of years ago cheesy title thinking outside the books um, the, but the, the principle there was that you have a lot of publishers who think uh, still and I, you may not have experiences in which case you're, you're lucky but if you only go to journals publishers you'll see some wonderful digital advances they are very good typically journals publishers have got this they're, they're way advanced of most other publishers trade publishers not so good in my view I don't I don't work with so many of them uh, and educational, so secondary state education publishers and so on, again, not so good. They tend to start by printing, by thinking in the book first, by printing the book first. Um, and everything is hanging off the sale of the book. Why? Because it's 80% of their revenue. So they are driven by the book decision. And then they try to, they try to fork off some kind of um, digital version of that book. But because the content was commissioned for a book. It's still got that kind of book flavour to it. And then they end up with difficulties when they're trying to publish it as a digital thing. So that's where you end up with sort of page behind glass approaches. People digitise books by making hotspots. That still happens. I know it does. It was happening 11, hang on, 2006, happening 11 years ago at AEP. When I left in 2013, it was still happening. Um, and, you know, people aren't thinking Let's free up the content first. Let's create it in such a way that it could be delivered either as a print piece or as a digital piece or online or as a device-driven piece, you know. And that's another thing that we try to do. And we've done it for some of the publishers you're seeing cycle past here, is we start with the content and the people in the process thing, but we start with the idea of creating content that is mutable depending and can be delivered in different ways. As I say, journals publishers typically are getting this um, much more easily because of the t nature of their content uh, to a degree and the nature of the consumption of that content as well. 
Um, but what do you do in schools where you you're, you still people still have? Do you still use books here? See, you're at university, you're still using books, that kind of thing. So what do you do where there's still a print component uh, to, to how you learn? You know, um, what we want to try and do is help publishers get their content organised in such a way that it almost doesn't matter what the end result is, so long as they have the ability to put it together in the right way for that end result. If you make the end result the decision maker at the front end of how you commission your content, then forever that content maintains the identity of the end result. You see what I mean? So we need to break that mindset. That's part of the people thing, is breaking that mindset. Um, one publisher we worked with, not too far from here, but not OUP, um, listed out some of the problems they were having. And I thought it was worth um, saying, because they, these, are, these are common problems as well. It's one of the reasons why I keep going back to this is we keep seeing this with every publisher we work with, whether that's Taylor and Francis or Wiley or Elsevier. Pearson, um, all of these people, Cengage we've worked with, we keep seeing Cengage fly past. We worked with um, some publishers in the US as well um, that are less well known over here. Um, but most of them are saying something like this. So common problems are verticalization and fragmentation. That was their phrase. We asked them to explain what it meant. And what they meant was that they have an organizational structure, like I was saying about OEP that makes that content stick in a vertical. It's like it's a primary content. All the primary content is for the primary department. The secondary content is over here. Divisions, ELT, education, academic, dictionaries. They all keep their own content siloed in there. Um, the other, that leads to isolation. This is another one of their words. A big thing around knowledge engineering, which I'm just beginning to learn, is the idea that you can, only, you can not only link your own content to each other, and this is a great thing, Alfresco does do this quite well, but there are other things about it um, that allows the content to be related to other pieces of content. But now more and more with things like DOIs, digital object identifiers, you can link content to content that's out there. Um, so you can start to get what they call link, I think it's linked online data, uh, or I think it's linked online data, LOD. Uh, and so you can relate a piece of content that you create to something that's out there in the world, which means that all of that, met you can, your metadata and their metadata can be joined together, which makes your content even more findable, even more searchable. That doesn't happen a lot in publishers. Um, inconsistency. This is a big one for acquisitive publishers. So publishers like Taylor and Francis, who buy up a lot of lists, for example, often have, and we, we helped solve some of this for them, um, often have problems where the content they bought from publisher X and the content they bought from publisher Y are held in different formats digitally. Um, literally sometimes Quark Express over here, for those of you who know what that is. Does anybody use Quark anymore? I don't think so. Anyway, it's, it's precursor to InDesign. You know, they might have InDesign here, Quark Express here, XML over here, text files over here, and it's all in different formats. Worse than that, the metadata is inconsistent. Metadata is a I'm sure you've heard meta how important metadata is, right? I don't need to go into that. Although nobody can explain to me how metadata equals revenue, so we can have that conversation in a minute. Um, but, the, but the metadata is inconsistent, which means you can't relate the content. There's lots of cleanup that people need to do. Um, duplication, I mentioned earlier. Sometimes it's easier to buy something again than it is to find it. Um, and that's a waste of money. It's just nonsensical. Happens a lot. I mean, I can't. Every single client we work with, in some way or other, has been duplicating their content. 
uh, rights visibility. Um, so, as I mentioned earlier on, you, with metadata, you can put rights visibility around it and manage the rights, and that's again something we try to do. But the important reason for that is it, um, most rights in most companies I've come across are managed by um, a system that has been brilliantly working for 25 years, it manages everything, knows where everything is, you can find it and so on, and then he or she retires. And that knowledge goes with that person and that system falls over immediately. There's no supporting system around rights and people aren't getting, and that's important. Uh, because if you can't see the rights on your content, you don't know whether you can reuse it, you don't know if you're in breach of those rights contracts and so on. And that's become incredibly important. And also, you know, the company that bought Ixus, go on to later if you like, Copyright Clearance Centre, they're a big people, you know, they, they, they claim, they reclaim a lot of money of illegally used rights income. So it's incredibly important for a, for a publisher to have that line on their P&L of rights income coming in. This is an important piece of it. Um, one uh, publisher that I went to visit a couple of years ago were very proud about the way they tracked rights and they showed me a, a spreadsheet that had um, uh, all of the ISBNs and current rights clearance and so on and all of the different pieces of uh, rights cleared material under that ISBN and they, that linked to another spreadsheet over here that had the and so on and so on. It was, what we call spread mart, you know, kind of managing by spreadsheet. And it was a beautiful moment because we were helping them define their problem. And I happened to say, that first ISBN there, you've got 14 digits in it. And there should only be 13. So which is the wrong digit? And she said, I'll have to go and check in the other spreadsheet. So that's how people are managing rights. And it's happening out there. Nobody's perfect. They're not as digitally advanced as we'd like to think they are. So any publishing companies that you go into in the future, I guarantee you'll see at least one of these problems. What all of this means is that most publishers are, are, are in a position where they're slow to react to changing market conditions. My own story again, I go back to the last year I was at OUP. We had a sudden massive opportunity. We're talking quarter of a million pounds worth of possible revenue lost unless we got the digital bit right. And we had to get it right in months, and we we're talking six months in the UAE, the United Arab Emirates. And we needed to turn all of our, but the, the sheikh in the UAE had said, the, the Minister of Education had said, everything's going digital, we're getting rid of books out of the classroom, at all state level higher education. Get rid of them, we're not teaching English, we're not teaching anything except digitally. And OUP had no choice but to take. Um, well, I had no choice but to take what we had and do the print-on-screen thing because that's the easiest thing we could do in six months. By the time we'd done it, the teachers had already figured out a better way of doing it. So by the time we delivered to the teachers what we thought they were asking six months ago, um, they had already moved on and found different ways of doing it, so what we delivered was no longer what they wanted. Now, OEP survived that crisis. They got around that and managed to protect a quarter of a million pounds worth of revenue. But the interesting thing there was that the speed, the six months it took us just to digitise print content and put it on screen and put some hotspots in it to make it digital enough was still too long a time and we could have lost that market share. Speed to market is a massive thing. You can't find your content, you don't know whether you've got your rights cleared, you don't know what it's linked to, you don't know where it was used before. All of that kind of stuff is just impacting the business. And so that's the... Um, those are some of the common problems we come across, apart from, I was thinking about fears as well. 
you know, the fear of print declining, print faithful digital stuff I've mentioned before, another one around digital content should be free because it's easier to do. Have you explored any of those myths in any of your classes? I mean, it's just not true. Digital content still costs. And the point then is the mindset of the customer. If they think the delivery, because it's digital, it should be cheaper or free, that comes from a mindset that says um, the value of the content is in the format that it's delivered. But the value of the content is the content itself. Publishers need to work to change that perception of what they deliver, I think. They start needing to talk about how they deliver content that's valuable rather than we deliver a book. And they move the price discussion from content, from, from delivery format to content value. But that's a whole other bugbear in mind. So at Ixus, what we try to do is help articulate those problems. And a lot of vendors do this. We're not the only one that does it. Articulate it well so that we know what we're trying to solve. And then we try to help them solve these problems. And I've talked about content being all over the place and not being linked and so on. And we came up with five easy ways of talking about it. There are five areas you could work on, five areas you could work on. Um, first of all, where you store your content. Um, so we talked about it being all over the place, literally on people's hard drives, somebody's forgotten it, can't access it, on a server over here, in, in global businesses, some, some content's in Singapore, some of it's over in the US, some of it's in the UK. Um, so store your content appropriately. Um, then we talk about um, decorating your content. So. Um, uh, that's enrichment, that's the word, the word we use is enrichment there. So that's the metadata and linking that content together. When you start doing that, you then enable discovery. So the difference between search and discovery, I'll come on to in a minute, but we enable discovery of the content which allows you to find what you're looking for when you need it. Um, collaborating on content, so that's the whole people thing. If we can start to make those processes around content delivery and creation easier, and supporting the kinds of formats and the principles of storing it and granular and, and enriching it and so on properly, then you enable the business to do much more with their content, maximizing the lifetime value of it. And then finally, and it's a word I don't like, but I can't think of a better one, granularize. So granularize the content. So again, we talk about the mindset of print, you know, long, long form text, even a, even a journal can be a long form text to break it up into smaller chunks of content that you can then link and, rel and relate to each other. That enables that discovery, that enables that reuse and so on. And those five things work together to enable a business to do better in my view. Um, and I think that's what it comes down to is, um, st uh, my biggest wish with all of my clients is to, for them to stop seeing these as IT problems, to start seeing them as business problems. Because what all of, all of the things I've talked about, all of those problems, those little bits and pieces we talked about, if you add them up, and most organisations are having this problem, they are failing at what they're doing well. They're failing at their business because it is impacting their top line and it's impacting their cost line and it's squeezing the margin right the way down costing them more to deliver the same amount of content and it's uh, and they're, they're getting less revenue for it because of expectations on the market, because they're missing opportunities and so on. So all this stuff around content, storing it, collaborating on it, enriching it, granularizing it, and what was the other one? Store enrich, anyway, decorating it. Um, all of those five things, um, they are 
I, I was thinking about this this morning, it's almost like a revelation to me, is to realise that if you stop seeing them as business problems, stop seeing them as IT problems, start seeing them as business problems, then people might treat them with the urgency they deserve. Um, and they, it would be as important as getting the right approach to selling content, selling books, selling online stuff, uh, getting the right sales training and so on. They need to treat it with the, that same degree of respect because these things are problems that impact profitability at the end of the day. And that's where my job comes in, is to kind of push that RFP solution thing away and say, and this is a great thing we've been doing more recently, is connecting this problem to business goals. So we've created this process around business benefits. When we talk to clients, we say, what is it you're trying to achieve? So give us your five-year roadmap. You know, you want to increase your revenue by 10%, move your cost line down by 10%, whatever you want to do. Impact, you know, enter that market. We, we get them to talk to us as honestly as possible about the goals they're trying to achieve as a business. We're not even talking technology at this point. And we're trying to say, okay, how are these things being impacted by the way that you do things, your processes? Okay, we haven't talked about technology yet, we're just talking about the problems, we're surfacing those problems. And we try to connect the things that we do to the benefits they can gain as a business, rather than seeing it as an IT problem that says, uh, um, we need a new system because, um, uh, it called, I don't know, whatever system X is out of date and doesn't really handle 13-digit ISBNs anymore or something like that. We have, they have to stop seeing it as that. They have to see that all of these things that we're trying to solve for them are massive business critical problems. If they get it wrong, they will lose out. And some publishers are already losing out. They're already seeing real, real squeezes on their top line and on their bottom line. And that's why we're seeing layoffs. Um, I'm sure that's why we're seeing layoffs. It's, it's not just that they're not selling enough, it's they're not enabled to sell it appropriately, that they're not able to respond as quickly as possible. They're not doing it as cheaply and as efficiently as possible. They are wasting money and time. We see those problems all the time, and that's what we try to do. Um, so I think people like me and people like Ixus should be engaging less with IT. We always get approached by the IT guys. And I would much rather be approached by the CEO or the, uh, or the publishing director or whoever uh, and for them to recognise that it's a business problem that maybe they don't know how to articulate because they, they recognise as a technology component. We can help them articulate it. My role at OUP as business engagement manager is helping the business articulate the problem so that the IT people can solve it. Um, but seeing it as a business problem, not an IT problem, that's, that's starting. I haven't really well formed that thought because it came to me in a sort of slightly cold driven haze this morning. But that whole idea that it is a business problem is not an IT problem. And that's what we try to do. It's interesting seeing the rise of, um, the rise of roles like chief digital officer appearing on boards of businesses now. Um, or business engagement manager like I had, or technology head that's not head of IT. These are becoming board level important roles, and that's a good sign. They're starting to see that it's not necessarily a technologist who has to be this. It doesn't have to be an IT guy, somebody who understands XML. It has to be somebody who, who gets what the business impact is and not having this right. And that's what we try to do at Ixis is Help them realise, hold a mirror up and say, that's what you're not getting right, but we can help you here. But these things you're going to have to fix as well. And that may be somewhere where we can't help you. Maybe we're not change agents, we can't help you change 
you know, the structures of your business, those are decisions you're going to make. But we can hold up a mirror and say, this is where you need to change. Thank you.